I think, uh, I think Josh is going to have a hard time making my voice sound good. I'm sorry, I know most of you are going to be wanting to clean, clear your throat as I talk, but um, we've been praying that the Lord will give me the, the strength to get through, not so much my strength, but just my voice. So you can be praying for that as well. And for those of you who don't want to hear it, you can be praying it'll get worse. Because today I have the good news and bad news. It's like Jordan said, he read Galatians and he stopped and said, that's the bad news. Well, I have some bad news too. And you just heard Jordan read it. And that is the th- or two of the three woes that are still to come. But there is good news. And we'll see that this morning as well. But before we begin this chapter, I just want to give you a little update on where we're up to. Particularly in the end time scheme, not just in Revelation, but the end time scheme. You see, the the scriptures teach that the next event to happen in God's prophetic calendar is what we call the rapture of the church. According to Scripture, there is nothing more that needs to happen prophetically for this event to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. No one knows except God himself, but it will happen. And it can happen any moment. (coughs) It is closer now than it's ever been, and it will come. It's a certainty. And it's not a certainty because I say so, It's certainly because the Word of God says so. Be assured of it. Don't think to yourself at the moment that it may or may not happen. It will happen. And when it does happen, when this rapture happens, all true born-again believers are going to be caught up together with those who have already died as Christians to be with the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians 4 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And I love verse 18, Therefore comfort one another, with these words. And as we read chapter 9, that comfort needs to come this morning. That comfort needs to come to you who are born again believers that you will not be there when all this happens. You see, the rapture of the church is not only going to see us to be with the Lord, it is also prophetically according to the scriptures, the beginning of a seven-year period of wrath. A seven-year period that is going to be poured out upon this earth. A time the Bible calls tribulation. A time the Bible calls Jacob's trouble. During this time of tribulation, during the seven years, there will (coughs) be a one-world ruler We call him the Antichrist. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. 
In fact, if you remember, back in chapter 6 of Revelation, he was the one that was introduced as the rider on the white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And during this seven year period there will be seven seals to open. There will be seven trumpet judgments that will be upon the earth and there will be seven bowl judgments that will come upon the earth. Last time we looked together, we looked at chapter 8 and we discovered there the first four trumpet judgments upon the earth and that's why when the scripture was read for us by Jordan, we, started at number, we start today at number 5. In verse, uh, <coughs> sorry, chapter 8, verse 7, there was the first that sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. The second trumpet in verses 8 and 9 was a, something like a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea. The third trumpet in verse 10 was a great star that fell from heaven burning like a torch. Many died from the waters because they became bitter. The last one we looked at last time was verse 12. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck so that a third would be darkened and the day would not shine. That was about six weeks ago, maybe five. Hopefully you can remember some of the things that we went through. But now we continue our study in verse 9 containing the last three, or two of the last three judgments. And I do need you to remember that if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a born again believer, you will not be there during this time. As 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, you will be with the Lord. And I praise God for that. So why are we studying this book? Why study Revelation if we're not going to be there? Well, some people say not to study Revelation. When I first became a Christian, um, Karen's mentor said to me, don't read Revelation. Well, me being me, I went straight to Revelation and have been enjoying it ever since. We need to study Revelation because it's in God's Word. There is no other reason. It is in God's Word and we believe here in this church that every word of God is profitable for teaching, for correction for reproof, for training, for righteousness. And the outcome will be so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we at NCC are committed to studying every word of the scripture verse by verse. But in this particular case, there's a second reason why it's great to read this book. Just turn back with me to Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear 
the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. The time is near. You are blessed if you read it. You are blessed if you hear it. It's interesting how reading and hearing are two different things, isn't it? You can read and not really hear it. You can actually hear and not really hear it as well. I'm hoping you'll be able to hear it this morning, but you read it and hear it and heed and you will be blessed. And if you want a bit more on the idea of being blessed, then read um, Alex's intro to our letter, to our newsletter today. It has a, a whole section there on being blessed. We all want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. So I want to read Revelation. I want to hear it. I want to hear what it says. And I want to heed the things that it says. Even though I won't be there, there are still lessons in it. You might remember that the next three trumpet judgments have already been introduced to us in 8.13. Just have a look back at chapter 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Those woes are good with a croaky voice, aren't they? Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And while the destruction we looked at last time of the four trumpet judgments was catastrophic, they were catastrophic to the elements of the universe, to the tree, to the grass, to the water, to the sun, to the moon. They focused on those things, but... Now we have three woes and they will be far worse. Why are they far worse? Because they now focus on people. Three trumpets, three great woes that will come upon who? Who are they going to come upon in verse 13? If this was a Bible study, I'd ask you to tell me. But seeing no one likes to talk in sermons... I'll tell you, those who dwell on the earth will be the ones that will receive these three trumpet judgments. But last time we looked at chapter 8, we looked and discovered that phrase literally means those who dwell permanently on the earth. Those whose life is only on the earth. Those whose life or citizenship is not in heaven. I want you to understand that as born-again believers you are pilgrims passing through. You do not dwell permanently on this earth. You understand that, don't you? You are not to dwell permanently on, on this earth. Your citizenship is already with you in heaven. That is where you belong right now. We're not there, but that's where you belong. Your citizenship is in heaven. But those who are have no citizenship in heaven, the scripture calls them those who dwell permanently on the earth, those whose life is only on this earth, and we call them unbelievers. In Revelation 9, we're going to see the wrath of God poured out against these people. And why is it poured out? Because they rejected the Son of God. 
And so the fifth trumpet of the first woe judgment is introduced in verse 1. <coughs> Peter, I'm going to call upon you to read the scriptures for me. It'll save my voice. Would you be able to do that? Have you got... Just read 1 to 3 for the people. That's what we're going to read. Introducing the first woe judgment. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke <laughs> like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Thanks, Peter. When the fifth angel sounded the trumpet, John saw a star. Now, to identify this star, we need to make note that John describes this star as having already fallen. Can you see that? It's in past tense. This star had already fallen to the earth. In other words, John didn't see this star fall. It had already fallen. So who is this star that has already fallen? And I say who because the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So the first thing we discover is this star that has fallen is a him. Just listen as I read Isaiah 14 verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. Now I'm sure majority of you know that Isaiah 14 is about Satan. About his desire to usurp God's authority. The seven I wills that Satan said, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And God says, I cast you down. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Some scripture reference say son of the dawn or Lucifer, which is what that means. And so just as Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 14 uh, applies to Satan, so this trumpet includes the idea of Satan bringing a scourge upon the earth by opening up that abyss. But notice in verse 1 the key to the abyss was given to him. This abyss is under divine control. Satan cannot spread any terror until granted by God himself. Please understand that past, present and future, the devil cannot operate at will. He cannot work outside of God's plans and his horde of locusts and demons cannot be released simply because Satan desires it. Who is in control? God is in control. God is on his throne. In fact, God has never lost control. Even though we look around today and we get the feeling that that may be the case, but it's not. God has plans and we see these plans unfolding in chapter 9. 
So what is this bottomless pit or this abyss as some versions have it? It occurs six more times in Revelation. We're going to see the beast come out of this pit. We're going to see Satan in chapter 20 bound and thrown into this abyss for a thousand years. You may also remember a mention of it in Luke chapter 8. It's a well-known story when Jesus visited the shores of Gadara on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a man, but the demons said before they went into the pigs, he said, they said, and they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. You see, the abyss is part of a hidden underworld under the Lord's authority that exists right now. Today, right at this moment, this fearsome army described here is already confined, waiting for their hour of liberation, which only God can give. And at a time granted by God himself, Satan is given these keys and he opens the abyss and out of it comes a great cloud of smoke that fills the sky. You have to use your sanctified imagination here because John is trying to describe something he's never seen before. And in, verse chapter, in chapter 9, there is so many likes because he doesn't know how to describe it. He's never seen it before. Smoke out of a pit like the smoke of a great furnace. He couldn't even describe this except to say that it was like a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke and the pit. And something was following this smoke. Locusts upon the earth and power was given them as a scorpion of the earth have power. You know, the description that was read for us in verses 11, 7 to 11 shows that these are not ordinary locusts. And the fact they came from the abyss, a place for demons, substantiates that conclusion. In fact, these creatures John is describing as very real. They are not symbolic they must never be considered symbolic as a representation of judgment that some would like to put on these verses. They're not symbolic. They're animal creatures like locusts. Not ordinary locusts because they're coming from the abyss. They are demonic in nature. In fact, it's better to describe them as demons who take on the form that is described or tried to be described by John. So what's the job of these locusts that have now been released from the abyss by the blowing of the fifth trumpet, which is a judgment upon the earth? What are they to do? Pete, would you read 4, 5 and 6 for me? They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion 
when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts will like... That, that'll do it. Thanks, mate. I'll get you to read that later. So that's their job. God has allowed Satan to bring them out to do specific things. I want you to understand that divine judgment is never out of control. Divine judgment is not a raging like a wildfire. Notice the control on this judgment. The Lord places limitations. They're limited to what they can strike. They're limited to how far they can go. They're limited to how long they can do it for. They can't attack the vegetation. They can't attack those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. By the way, who are those? You're allowed to yell it out. Who are the ones that have had the seal of God on their foreheads? I can't hear anybody. 144,000. We looked at that back in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 and 8. We were introduced. Now they're introduced again or brought it in that then. They're not allowed to be touched by these and God has said so. They also can't attack born again believers who happen to be, have been repented and born again. It doesn't say that in there, does it? So where do I get that idea from? Well, it goes back to 8.13. This woe is for those who dwell permanently on the earth. This woe, this attack is for those who are unbelievers. These demon locusts will be limited and they're not allowed to kill them. They can torment them. Now, I've been, never been stung by a scorpion. I don't know what torment that is. And I hope never to find out. But obviously it's a torment that drives people to want a suicide. It's a torment, though, that only lasts five months. Why five months? I don't know. <laughs> But what I do know, I'll tell you what I do know, is that those who are permanently dwelling on this earth will hear the message of salvation in that five months. They'll hear it from the 144,000 Jews. They will hear it from those who are other believers who are born again since, that, since the tribulation started. And these five months will be, for many people, their last opportunity to repent and believe before they die. You know, it's no different today. Today may be the last opportunity that you have as you're seated here this morning. Those who are not born again, this day may be the last opportunity that you have. The effect on these stings, says verse 6, says it will drive them to suicide, but they can't die. You imagine people throwing themselves off bridges, but they don't sink, they don't drown. They turn to poison and pills, but there's no effect. Somehow even bullets and knives won't be able to do their intended job, they cannot die. Satan and his demons only have so much liberty and no more. 
Do you remember when that happened before that we have record of? The book of Job. Satan was given only so much he could do. I like to think of Satan as a, an evil that is, has a, a leash around its neck and that leash is held by God. He is very real, he is very evil and very powerful but God is in control. And as I said, these locust-like demons, John's trying to explain who, what they are. It's difficult for him. That's nothing like he'd ever seen before. And this is how he described it. And I'll get Pete to read 7 to 10. This is how John tried to describe something he'd never seen before. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So here we have a detailed description of these creatures. We can see John's not writing about something that you and I have ever seen before. He is portraying a powerful enemy armed for battle, a demonic enemy coming from the abyss. And this enemy has a king. And I like the way that John described that, the fact that locusts don't have kings, but these hordes do. And these hordes have a king over them, according to verse 11. The angel of the abyss, his name is he, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both words mean destroyer. One in Greek, one in Hebrew, just to make sure no one misses out. An apt name for the head of a devastating army, a devastating demon army that rises from the abyss. Bodies like horses, faces like men, demons' heads crowned and covered with something like long hair, teeth like lions, skin like chainmail. When they fly, it's like chariots rushing by. Do we need to interpret these things and what they actually are? Do you really think it's worth trying to work out what these are? Unfortunately, a lot of commentators will spend the next chapter trying to work out what these are as we know them. But we don't need to work out what they are. These are satanic. I'll just read what one commentator says, and I don't want you to get sucked into trying to describe these from what we know. He says, Here is a prophetic description of modern war machines be they cruise missiles, scud missiles, rockets, warplanes, bombers, fighters, tanks, helicopter gunships, laser guns, nuclear submarines and every other form of lethal battlecraft. You take away the miraculous and you come up with something stupid. This is a miraculous demonic event. It is not necessary to try and work out 
what we think they may be and look like. Whatever the size and appearance of these creatures, I want you to understand what stands out is they are real. They are ferocious in looks and action. And even though the nature of this full-scale demonic torment is not described, the fact that it drives people to seek death and not finding it is very real. You know, in a way, I think this is a time of judgment that is literally hell on earth for five months. I know we say that sometimes. You understand that hell is eternity of torment don't you? And you can't die because you're already dead. So literally this is hell on earth. A time where you will be tormented or where these people will be tormented but cannot die. I don't know if God done that specifically to give us an idea of what hell would be but it certainly gives me an idea of what hell is. God allows this judgment to occur. He sets the limits. He brings it to a conclusion. When his purpose is finished, he is in control. And as God's people, we have to be very thankful that Jesus Christ holds the keys of hell and Hades. He holds the keys. He exercises divine authority even over Satan. God has a timetable for all these events and nothing will happen too soon or too late. Praise God. Praise God. But what I do know, it, was, it will never happen while we as born again believers are on this earth. So the description of the first woe ends with the words of verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Bad news. And I'll get Pete to read the bad news of what the next woe is in 13 to 16. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. 200 million. It was at the golden altar of incense, if you remember, that the angel offered the prayers of the saints in the last chapter. And now from this same altar, a voice voice commands that four angels be loosed. Who are these four angels? I don't know. doesn't matter. But I will tell you that Pastor took us through Jude, and I'll just read Jude 6 to you. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Angels who have been punished are in eternal bonds waiting for the judgment. Now you can take that judgment to be upon them and that'll be fine, 
but I take it to be an eternal, they're in eternal bonds under darkness waiting for the judgement of the great day so that they can perform it on other people. What we know for sure is that each angel appears to be in charge of a vast 200 million mounted troops and I love the way that the writer that John put down at the precise time, he mentions it, an hour, a day, a month and year. The precise time for a special purpose. God's timing, God's purpose. What was the purpose? To kill. Not torment this time, but to kill a third of the world's population. Now you might remember back in Revelation 6-8 that a quarter of the mankind would be killed by the pale horse rider. This means, if I've done my maths correctly, that a half of the world's population will be dead by the time of the sixth trumpet judgment. A half of the world's population. This is some tribulation. This is the tribulation that Jesus said if we had not brought it to a close, no one would have even lasted. What did they look like, these 200 million horsemen? I'll get Pete to read 17 to 19. Sorry, Pete, you're doing a good job, mate. (laughs) And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the colour of fire and of sapphire and of sulphur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulphur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. I don't want to be flippant, but I do want to get it across to you that we don't need to again describe what these are and try and work out what they are. They're demonic. One commentator again says, and I'm not mentioning names because I don't want to discredit them, I just want to show you what people are thinking. He says, John could very well be talking about fighter jets. They fly in the air and they have power out of their mouths and you know the front of a jet is open like a lion's mouth. These are reputable men who have taken the time to to, to write books yet they get sucked into trying to to work out what they are. John describes them. We don't need to describe them as a fighter jet. All we need to know is that they are moving across the world. Some people I've been told, and I couldn't find a reference to it, but some people think it could be a literal army like the Chinese army because they have 200 million soldiers apparently. But if you're trying to work these things out, you're missing the point of John's message. You're missing the point of what John and God is trying to convey. In fact, you notice the soldiers have nothing to do with the devastation. The deadly power of these horses is in their mouth and tails, not in the soldiers. 
Fire, smoke and brimstone are the plagues that come out of the horse's mouth. Their tails are like biting serpents. They can attack from the front as well as the rear. It's another demonic army headed by four fallen angels and most importantly for us right now, they're bound by the Lord. God has them bound for the right minute, the right hour, the right day, the right month, the right year. They are bound. According to the scripture, they're bound at the Euphrates River, but it's not explained why. Don't go looking for explanations. All we know is from Genesis 2.14 that this area is the cradle of civilization. So how do you think people on earth are going to react to this judgment? How do you think you would react? Judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment, locusts and these, these things that are described as horses with uh, demonic horses. How do you think people are going to react? Billions, not just millions of people dying. Signs in the sky, environmental damage, disasters. What do you think the reaction is going to be? Don't you think they should just about fall on their knees and say, God, we've learned our lessons. We know you are powerful. We repent. Pete, would you read 20 and 21 and tell us what they actually do do? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor giving up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It blows your mind, doesn't it? You'd think after a combination of five months of torment, then death from fire, smoke and brimstone would bring men and women to their knees in repentance, but such is not the case. Later on we're going to read where men and women find caves and raise their fist at God and say, try and do the best you can against me. And I thought to myself, in the face of this pig-headed refusal to repent, why judgment? What's judgment for if it's, not ineffe- if, it, if it's so ineffectual in producing change? What's the point of judgment? Well, let's not forget that the book of Revelation has already told us that millions will repent during this time. Let's not ignore that great multitude which mo- no man can number from every tribe and nation and language. A great multitude who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have believed and have received the grace of God. But here's a great number that judgment hasn't affected in that way. Judgment, as they see it, doesn't make them listen because their hearts are hardened. They're unrepentance, they're unable to believe, they're no longer able to heed because they refused the grace of God. 
You see, that's in fact what produces this kind of hardness of heart. I don't think God ever expected to convert the world through judgment. But what judgment does is it makes us listen to his grace. It makes us take seriously what God is offering as a way of escape. In these terrible judgments we see the power, the majesty, the might, the inescapability from God. And so we must ask ourselves, what must I do to be saved? You see, that's the effect of judgment. What shall I do? That's the very questions that the people that were hearing Peter's sermon at the time of Pentecost said, what must I do to be saved? What shall I do? How can I escape? What is my way out? I don't want to go through all this judgment. And what God then provides to those who feel their peril is the message of grace through you, through me, through preaching of the gospel. You see, it's not when judgment threatens that we turn to God. It's when we see a suffering love that gives itself for us. It's when we see a suffering love that bears the hurt and the agony and the pain. It's that suffering love that breaks and melts our proud hearts It's that love that silences our excuses and opens the doors to salvation. But then to reject that grace when it's clearly understood to be offered is to turn your back on it. It's to render your heart unassailable. It's to render repentance impossible. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 3 asks this. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He wasn't talking about this escape, about being the tribulation, but I want to use it for that. How shall we escape this tribulation if we neglect so great a uh, salvation? How can we escape if we neglect the offer of God's grace. You see, God does not want to judge you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God God doesn't want to judge you. He loves you. But judgment is all that's left for those who reject the way of escape. That's all that's left for you here this morning if you have rejected the way of escape, which, by the way, is the grace and mercy of of God in which he supplies. Just before the sermon we sang, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, his burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Saviour, 
God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. It's incredible, isn't it? We see the tenderness and the graciousness of God. How much he wants his people to be delivered from judgment. How much he wants you to be delivered from judgment. But in the end, you have to ask that question, how shall we escape or how shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? There's two people who are hearing this sermon this morning. One group of people are being encouraged. They're not not going to be there during this. We're going to be called up together with those who are already dead and born again into the clouds to be with the Lord forever and so we shall ever be with the Lord. And hopefully I've comforted you with those words so that you know you're not going to go through this. But there may be some among us who this morning have been coming here for months, years, and have never received the grace of God through receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And in the face of judgment such as those we've looked at today, you must face this question, how shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? In, in, in reality, it's a rhetorical question in the sense that you will not escape. And so I leave that question in your mind and your heart for you to personally answer in your own life. Only you can do that. How shall I escape? But my prayer is that you'll be able to sing our closing song with as much assurance as all born-again believers here this morning It is well with my soul. Let's just pray together as our musicians gather. Father, we do thank you for your word. As we read this chapter, it seemingly is just bad news upon bad news. And Lord, it is for those who reject your Son. I thank you that you have placed this in your word to give us, uh, to be profitable to us so that we may be equipped for every good work. Lord, it's an encouragement to my heart to know that I have personally accepted salvation so that I may escape I pray for those here this morning who have not made that decision. Lord, we know it's only by your Spirit drawing uh, this person to yourself. We know that, Father, you draw all people. I pray that you would do that this morning. And if there's a hindrance to to anyone coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I ask that you would take that hindrance and just deal with it. Lord, it would be wonderful for every person sitting in this room to be able to sing this song and to be able to say with great joy and great passion, it is well with my soul. Amen.